Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcy. Today's conversation was fun. I had a really good conversation with Steve Rifkin, who is the founder of Loud Records, founder of SRC, and the founder of Spring Sound, which is a new record label that he recently started. Steve's a legend in the game and is a legend in hip hop too. He actually got into the industry, worked closely with his father, who was a record label executive. And then Steve became a record label exec himself. Loud Records was big time. Had some of the biggest acts of the 90s and the 2000s. They had Wu-Tang Clan, Twista, Terror Squad, Akon. They had such a strong roster. And we talked through that. And it was great to reminisce because they had a 25th anniversary celebration of Loud Records right before the pandemic started. So in January 2020, they had a 25th anniversary event right in Manhattan, and it was really special to see all those acts come through. One of the surprises at the event was DMX. He wasn't formally part of Loud Records at the time, but he developed a pretty close relationship with Steve, and Steve became his business manager for the most recent years up until the time that he passed. And Steve and him had developed a pretty close relationship, and we talked a lot about that too. Listen, Steve and I covered a lot in this conversation. It was really great to talk to him. I learned a lot. I hope you do too. Here's my chat with Steve Rifkind. We got Steve Rifkin here, who is the founder of Loud Records, one of the most influential record labels in hip hop. And I got to ask, you've been in the industry for so many years. You are a family person in this industry, your son, your father as well, being involved. How does it feel? Because I feel like that just must bring everything together with everything that you've accomplished in music. Man, that's really, it's funny that you asked that question because I was thinking about it last night. I found a picture of me and my dad and I must've been like 18, 19 years old. And then I, you know, calculated like how he was 30 years older than me. So he was 50, you know, and it's like, I'm older than him now. Like from that picture, I'm 59. So I was like, man. And then just comparing my relationship with him and then my relationship with my kids, it's mind boggling to me. I mean, I, I just had a lunch with, um, a guy named Sean Holiday, who used to be president of Columbia Urban Music and now is with Azov. And, you know, I was just telling him how it was different when I was starting to now. But I'm really enjoying it now where, um, you know, I just started a new label with my son and my nephew. And we named the label after my dad's label. And it's really just given me life. Like, I wake up motivated. I wake up hungry. I mean, I got to lose 15 pounds. But, um... It's something that I'm really, 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 really excited about. And that's cool, especially just how much you've seen in such a long period of time, but also just the changes as well. And the fact that you're excited about it, I feel like there's just so much that is different. And I guess we could start there. What has been the biggest differences for you? Because I'm sure at its heart, this is music. You're putting it out. You need to adapt to whatever the climate is. But this is a very different era than the one you started in, right? Another great question. And it's funny that you said that. So when I started 43 years ago, the, take the streaming and the business away for a second. The model pretty much is the same because now it's about single driven business and being consistent and having just a steady flow of product. When I started going through an independent distributor, which Spring did, it was always about 
a consistent flow of product so you know you can get paid from the distributors. So the business, the dollars and cents are different, but it's like, all right, it's a single business and just keep on putting it. If you, you know, my dad would put out, I think it was anywhere between 10 to 15, but let's just say 10 for the sake of saying 10. He would put out 10 singles a month and we would sell. And this was 12 inch vinyl, right? I'm not even talking about the cassettes. I'm not even talking about the 45s. This is 1980 where we would sell the single for $2 to a retail store. And the retail store would buy it for like, so sell it for like $3.99. So if we put out 10 singles a month and we say we just did 2,000 each single, right? That's 20,000 times two. That We were making 40,000 a month. And that was our philosophy. And the album, if we ever came to an album, that would be $4. So when I started spring, I sat down with my son and my nephew Cooper. And I said, listen, I want to put out a single a week, right? We have five artists now, and then we're going to f- sign a whole bunch of other artists, everything else like that. But if, if we're consistent, that's how we're going to get paid. And two of them are definitely going to break. So I'm using what I learned in my beginning days to right now. And I'm learning from them the whole digital marketing and, and everything like that. But the philosophy of just putting out the records and getting cash flow is by putting out singles. And hearing you break down those numbers from the vinyl days, I feel like there's certain artists now that would love if that was the case now, if they could put out a single and then they knew that, okay, we put out 2,000 of these, we're going to get $20,000. But now it's just so different. I mean, it's less than a penny per stream just based on how things often flow. It's different, of course, if you're owning your own record label and those things. But at its core, it's still the same, even though I'm sure the numbers are so different. Yeah, I I don't even know what the numbers are. Like I'm scratching my head every single day. It's like, all right, if we do 5 million streams, what is that? You know, it sounds like a lot. It's like, you know, when you go to, I mean, I think Italy now, you know, is with the Euro, but I remember when they had their own money, like I remember going to Italy for the first time and just cashing out and they gave me like $20 million, but it was only like a hundred dollars. Like, I mean, so I don't even know what it means, you know, if we do 5 million or 10 million, but you know what? If we put out 10 singles a month and each one does five, 10 times five, that's 50 million singles a month I'm doing. And I just got to figure out what what that math is. And that's just screaming. I mean, who knows what it is on YouTube, so on and so on. Right. And I imagine on the other side too, has there been a look at, okay, with Spring specifically, in the old days, you could have monetized just the music and been fine. But here, there's all these other ways to continue to look beyond it, whether it's your merch or your touring. And a lot of that stuff existed before for sure. But now I feel like there's a bit more pressure to monetize those things, just given how much volume you need from streaming to make up that same number. 100%. 100%, you know, and, and it's something that, again, I'm really excited about, you know, a few weeks ago, I went on YouTube and just all my old stuff that I, I don't own anymore that, you know, but I, I looked and I was, I'm going to say 10 billion in views, but it was a little bit less. It was like nine, six, you know, so it was just like, man, if I own 25% of that, I'm making real money. That's legit. That's legit. Yeah. And I don't know if you have the breakdown, but from that old stuff, I'm curious, 
is most of that Wu Tang? Or I know you had so many artists, but I know that they were, you know, so big for. No, most of it was Akon was three billion alone. Oh wow, wow. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, so much of his music, especially some of that stuff from the 2000s, still gets played a lot now. But yeah, yeah. I think that would surprise people because I think a lot of people would have expected Wu-Tang, not just that, but just given how valuable them as a group and IP, just their legacy, how much has continued. You know, but I think the reason why Akon is so, that number so big, you know, that album came out exactly when YouTube was started. So the Akon's second album came out 2006. So you talk about Wu-Tang came out 93. So that's 13 years. But yeah, it was like 3.4 billion with Akon records. Yeah. And that's a good point about the streaming piece. I mean, Smack That and I Want to Love You. I think those are the two biggest songs from that album. Those still get so much play. And Don't Matter. Oh, yeah. Don't Matter, too. Don't Matter, I think, was bigger than um, Smack That. Oh, wow. You know, and then there were ringtones. Oh, yeah, that's true. And that was, you know, so the ringtones were like, I didn't care. You know, I remember having a conversation with somebody from the L.A. Times. And they were saying, are you upset that you didn't debut number one? I said, I don't care that I didn't debut number one. Because if there was a chart, which there's a chart now, I guarantee you, I made more money than anybody did when we came out that week. Because the game came in number one. We came in number two. But we had... Smack that, and I want to love you as ringtones 10 times to 15 times more than the next opponent. And that's where the real fortune was making with us. Because that was new money. That was like, a, you know, on your PL, like there's a new line item. It's like, where the fuck is this coming from? And I feel like that too. And you correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't necessarily feel like you all had an intention of like, let's go make ringtone rap music. Cause I know that was a wave back then. I feel like those songs just happened to blow up. I had no idea what that was. I didn't even know. I remember the, the CFO at Republic said to me, um, this thing at the ringtone level is, blow. I'm like, what's a ringtone? And after the meeting, I, he took me into his office and he showed, and I was like, and David Banner had a huge ringtone too with play. So I was like, he goes, it was like when the CD came. So going back to the math, when we would sell the album for $4, same marketing cost, the CD came and was selling the CD for $10. So all of a sudden you have a $6 margin and that's why the record companies got lazy, right? So all of a sudden we have a new line item and it's like, this thing is bringing in millions of dollars to the bottom line out of nowhere. Yeah, because I remember, I think T-Pain had said once that he was making more from ringtones than he was from the albums. And I know he wasn't alone. A lot of people were. Him and Khan had a, I mean, they just had the formula. Yeah. Did that make you want to shift anything specifically to be like, okay, now that this happened, how can we capitalize on this? Or was there any urge to make ringtone rap? I wasn't that smart. I just wanted to keep on breaking artists. And that if I heard a great record, that, that's what still excited me. I never said, oh, man, how is this going to do on ringtones? That was the farthest thing from my mind. Mm. And honestly, I think that probably worked to your advantage to not think like that, because a lot of those artists... Yeah, more authentic. Yeah, like they just kind of rose and fell with the medium as opposed to truly living beyond it, right? And... I don't know if a lot, like, I don't, I don't know the last time I heard party like a rock star, right? Like oh, so many of those songs just don't live on in the same type of way. So that was, yeah. So I, I was just going to bring that record up. So I remember people were saying, um, they wanted me to sign it as a single. And I was like, there's no follow-up. Right. 
And I mean, I think he only put out that one. Record. I mean, Republic still had the record, but I, I passed on it. Mm. Yeah. And it could be tough for the moment, right? But th- that's what it was. There were so many people that just had those hits and some of them did well, but it was tough. I mean, maybe folks like Soldier Boy were a bit of a um, anomaly where they had continued success, but it was more rare that they were like that than having, you know, just one hit. Exactly. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. Such an error, though. I mean, even with that, you saw so many errors with this and just understanding, OK, when to adapt, when to look at things. And you mentioned yourself in the CD era, the industry did get lazy. But I guess for you, when Loud Records was having Wu-Tang and so many of the artists there in the 90s, what was it like from that business perspective? Because I'm sure you still wanted to continue hustling, hustling, and then you yourself were getting the label even stronger. So, you know, we never really saw the record business is a funny business, right? So we were a real JV. So, you know, most of these companies, they're real companies, but they're not, say, real JVs, where a lot of these companies are just 50-50 profit splits. So if they sell the company or if they sell the rights to the master, there might not be a capital gains. You know, it really all depends on how the wording is. So with us, no matter what type of year that we had, would never really see profits. So what I would do is just go back. Every time that we had success, I would tell my attorney to go back in and renegotiate the deal. Mm. And that's how we saw money. So it wasn't like, you know, with Wu-Tang forever, like I think we did 8 million, 9 million, you know, whatever that number was. So that was like $90 million in billing. When it came time to get the check for the end of the fiscal year, like they wrote us a check for like $200,000. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? You know, and it was like, this has to be a mistake. He said, no, nah, well, there's records sitting on well, record CDs sitting on the floor that they manifest, you know, so they just cut it. So I was like, you know what? Fuck you. Not even in an angry way. I just told my attorney, go in and this is what we want. We want more of a percentage back of the company. So we would be the majority person and we want XYZ amount in cash. Mm. And I'll be honest, that's one piece of the industry that I found always frustrating that I know that leverage is part of the game, but the fact that you really had to lawyer up every time that you wanted to get a fair deal or you wanted to get something that you felt was yours. But I know it wasn't just you. This is how things were. But that's one piece of it that I wish would change because I think a lot of that still exists today. No, it still exists. I just wish that the lawyers would really get their artists or their clients are real JV where they would really own half the masters and really own half the company where they really have to sign off on every bill that comes because on the 50 profit. Yeah. And do you think the reason that they don't do that is just because they don't have the leverage or they're not willing to have the patience to build up the leverage, or they just don't know the difference of asking for what 50 50 is versus a true joint venture? I mean, if you're a lawyer, you have to be pretty smart. So I think they know the difference. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little of both. I think the labels don't want to do it just because it's a lot of fucking work and a lot a lot of manpower. But you got to set up other companies. You got to put a board together. You know, it's a shitload of work. So they just figure, you know, 50-50, you know, and there's a buyout, some type of buyout provision at the end of it. But with that buyout provision, who knows if you can really get, you know, if you do sell for ten dollars, you know, do you really get a capital gains thing, or, or is it no ordinary income? 
Right, right. Yeah, I think that the lawyers obviously know. And I think that especially for artists now, especially from what I've seen, especially this wave of artists now, everyone wants to own their masters, everyone wants to have everything. I think people want these things. So at least they're asking for it. But having the leverage at least seems to be the not the missing piece, but that's the piece where there's more opportunity to either make sure that you have what you need in order to get that or negotiate it. But then on the other side too, some of this not rhetoric of people just wind on everything can prevent them from signing good deals when there's those in front of them. And that may not necessarily have been a challenge that I think you may have seen in the 90s because I think there was so much eagerness to get put on. It was harder to break out on your own. But maybe you're seeing this a bit more recently with Spring Sound where artists, you may you looking at or considering they're coming to you and they're like, hey, I want to own everything before they may have the leverage to do so. Is that something that you've seen? With Spring Sound, we have five artists, right? And, you know, we got a woman by the name of Jarlene. We have an artist by the name of Rye Rift. We have an artist by the name of Little Katil. I mean, Little Kari. An artist by the name of Bird Bennett and an artist by the name of BJ. So Little Kari and Jarlene and Rye Rift, they have a little bit of a, a social following. Bird and EJ really have no social following yet. So I have no problem giving ownership when things hit a certain point. But right now, you know, we're putting up the money and I'm just giving them the 50-50 deal. And I will give them ownership once there's some success. That makes sense. And do you see yourself staying as a label, staying solely independent with it? Or do you think there will be a future where there is a deeper distribution or relationship that you may have with a major? This is the thing. I mean, all my closest and dearest friends are at majors. But what can a major do that I can't do? If I'm having success, that means I have to catch. I'm still getting everything first. A major wouldn't look at any of these artists for another two, three years, just where they are socially. A major can't negotiate a better deal than I can at YouTube. Same thing at Apple and the same thing at at Spotify. I mean, I've been doing this 41 years. Half the people at the streaming service who are either business associates or work for me at at one time or another. You know, it's like Lior is head of YouTube, right? And at the end of the day, we weren't even business associates. We were just peers that literally started together in the 80s. There's not that many people left who are still doing what me and Lior did in the 80s. So as much as I love Monty Littman, it's a different relationship. It's impressive that you and Lior have been around as long as you have, too, because you're right. There are a lot of labels that are run by people who are much earlier in their career. They started after the wave that you all had seen. And at least it's good to see, at least from my perspective, because it adds variety to things, right? You can't just have new blood in there. You need to have people that have seen things to be able to help the entire ecosystem go. And your perspective, yeah, like, you know what makes sense, you know what they need, and you don't necessarily feel like there's anything else that they can offer that you can't. And I think in today's era, it's like, if you're willing to be patient, and if you're willing to make the connections, you can at least have a strong level of reach and distribution to where you may want it to go. It may not happen as fast as it may happen on a major label. You may not see the big flashing things, but it stems back to, okay, what are your goals as an artist? What do you want to see? What do you want to accomplish? No, so that's what it is. And I'm learning from these young kids. So, you know, I always say, I said it 40 years ago and I'll say it today, my job is to make your dreams come a reality. And as long as we're transparent and we communicate with each other, we're going to be fine. And I have no problem with it. If, you know, and that's why it worked with me and RZA so well. 
Rizzo would come to the office every single day with a notepad with a whole bunch of things that he would want done. And I said, yes, say 97% of the time. And then he'd say, why are you saying yes to me? I said, because it's making sense. You know, the record business could really be an easy business. Put your ego to the side. Listen to what the artists want. Go with your gut. The reason why we had that downshift in the industry, right? When the CD came, the labels, everybody got lazy because there was all of a sudden an extra $6. Everybody got a raise. Everybody got a promotion. And if you sold, if you had one hit single, you would sell a million units, $10 million worth of billing. Forget about the catalog, right? And everybody just, you know what? Whoever the flavor of the month was, if it was Reza from Wu-Tang or Dre or Pharrell or this one or that one, the creativity was lost. Because everybody would just sit behind their desk, have a fat expense account, a huge salary, and knowing that they only needed one single. Now here, it's like, all right, let's get back to work. Nobody's going to outwork me on one leg, two legs, whatever it is. So I'm going to take what I know from the 80s and the 90s, mesh it in what my son and nephew know and what, what's going on today. You know, the reason why QC is winning is because they got both. They literally own the streets. And they understand the whole digital game, right? So if you mesh that, you're not going to lose. Yeah. And you mentioned an interesting point. Oh, go ahead. Keep, keep going. You know, so that's why I, I take my hat off to Coach and Pete. Like, because that's really, I mean, that's what they're doing. And it's like, you know, we have a five artists, but, you know, we have Bird that's making serious noise in Portland. We got Little Kari and Rye Rift making a lot of noise in South Florida. And we're taking the old with the new and it's really, you know, and it's merging and, you know, eventually we'll get that movement and we'll, we'll get to streets, but you need both. You mentioned a few interesting things in there that I want to touch on. First was that period in the late nineties when the labels were getting fat and the margins were just crazy and like people were sleeping on what was coming. In that moment, did you feel like you saw that, okay, this may not last? So we're going back to like 97, 98, when the music videos were starting to get crazy and you could clearly see that money was pouring in. Did you think that this may end soon in that moment? No. I mean, the only thing that I really thought about was what's next. You know, my goal is always to break one artist a year in those days. So if you go from 91 to between that and SRC from 91 to 2012, I pretty much broke an artist every year, a brand new artist. So that was always my philosophy. So as one is breaking, we're developing the other one, two, or three. And then when iTunes started and everybody started getting worried about bootlegging, and you know, that's when I was, I was like, wow, the industry really is fucked. But you know what? A hit record is still a hit record. So, you know, a hit record might, you know, whatever it means today and whatever it meant 20 years ago, it's still a hit record, right? It's still going to get, you know, if it's played on a on Spotify, if it's played on the radio, you know, and like if you're affiliated with that record, it's just going to work. Who knows what the dollars and cents are? Mm. So that was always my um, motto. That makes sense. And I think the thing too, you mentioned breaking an artist every year. One of the things that I always noted about Loud was it did feel like there was a specific vibe, especially there in the 90s. There was a specific type of artist that seemed like they had that New York grit street style. And was having that brand something that was top of mind at the time? Or was it more so, okay, like how can we just get the best artist possible? Because it seemed like you were able to do a good combination of both. To me, it was always about the best artists, right? 
So listen, I'm not from the street. I grew up in Long Island at the end of the day, right? But I lived on the road for three years and I respected the street. You know, and I have a corny saying, the street doesn't lie. So they're going to just tell you like it is. So the first one who's going to listen to the street is going to win. I never wanted to dictate anything. I was always uncomfortable with that. I would always listen. And that's why our track record was so high. If they said the record was whack, I'm bringing the record back and finding out why it's whack and then making the changes what everybody said should be. You know, and, and so my A&R team thought that way, my promotion team thought that way, and my marketing team thought that way. So that was the philosophy. And like I said, I grew up in Long Island. My dad owned a company, Discovered James Brown. So it's like, I grew up okay. But my thing was always just to listen. Yeah, and I do think that being able to just have the sound pulled through and even some of the artists, whether, you know, Twista, everyone that was in Wu-Tang, you had such a strong run in Terror Squad as well. I think that, because I've always thought this, I do think having that brand and that identity helped a lot. But I think too, a lot of it, you mentioned just having an ear to the sound, that probably ties back to your background in being a promotions. You've, I know you've said in a few interviews yourself, like you see yourself much more as a promotions person and seeing that energy carry through because a lot of that I know is probably different now with spring, but a lot of it's still the same because it's still music. Like, how has it been navigating like, that piece of it, especially now? It's funny. We had a meeting yesterday and I went off on my son and my nephew and my daughter, who I'm training to be the CEO. I was like, you motherfuckers got to get on the road and start touching people. Enough of sending somebody a DM, this, that, you know, whatever. And it was, it was definitely, it was an interesting conversation, but I think it worked. So, I mean, that's where I am. You know, I'm a little stubborn, but I'm open for change. So, Looking now, like seeing what QC did, seeing what Top did, you know, seeing what the guys in Chicago who have, you know, G, Polo G. So it's like, I'm the old man now. So all I do is just watch, right? And then I'm like, you know what? Let's do that. But you know what? Let's make a slight right turn, bring it in a little bit. And, you know, so I'm making changes that I think would work for us. So what are some of those slight right turns? Like, what are some of those changes you made for you all? Like how everybody, you know, like to me, as I've been saying pretty much through the whole conversation, I still feel you need the streets, the real streets, not the Instagram streets, not the Facebook streets, not the YouTube streets, but real streets. And, you know, where you're getting the touch, the smell of what they're really saying about the record. And it's proving like we had this kid, little Kari out of South Florida, who's working. I mean, we quadrupled in streams from Monday to today. We'll be close to 20,000 streams a day within the next day or two. And we spent no money. Nice. Right this second. Nice. And would you say that then, since the streets has been so key, would are you still doing the same type of street team and that same approach that you were years ago? Or No, I think we're using the artist more. Let the artist go in with his crew, let them touch the people, let them see people, let them go into the boys and girls clubs, you know, and like, you know, Florida is an easy state because it's just one highway, literally from Miami to Tallahassee, right? So just stop off where you feel you need to be stopped off at, end up at the club that night and just touch people. And the records need to speak for themselves too. 
Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Because that's the piece. And obviously I think the pandemic made this very difficult, but this summer has probably been a good litmus test for a lot of that, right? Everything's opened back up. Things have been open for a while, especially in Florida. And you can start to see, okay, like this is what's been missing. How are the people resonating with this? And I think now with a lot of the artists you're signing to, at least at this point, they're assembling teams around them. So hopefully they have a little bit more to the table so that you can continue to push things and go with it. Like music still needs to be felt and heard outside. I think it was easy to get caught up in the on-demand of streaming and everything with what we can do through Spotify. But yeah. Music is the closest thing to God. If you ask me, it makes you laugh and makes you cry. It touches your emotions like there's no end. Like how many times have you driven in, in a car and you look to your right and there's like somebody blasting the record, dancing by himself, nobody else in the car, and like screaming or singing at the top of his lungs. I mean, that's your spirit right there, man. You know, so it's like, that's why I've always said, music is the closest thing to God, to me. Mm-hmm. So you need to have those records. I love that. Then for me, this is why I think that music has been the most interesting piece of culture in so many ways. People often ask me like, oh, who do I think is more impactful? This musician or this movie star or this basketball player? And I'm always like, music can hit and reach culture in ways that it just doesn't elsewhere. It hits globally and people are going to know the songs in the same way that a movie may not be as accessible or a basketball game may not be as accessible. It's not in the same level playing field. No, it's too different because, you know, the star of that movie is just the star of that movie. He's playing another character in the, in the, in the next movie, right? You know, and then if you take, you know, LeBron, who is King James, like, and I'm not taking anything away from him, you know, once he retires, yeah, you might be able to see an old game, say, wow, he really was the GOAT, you know, but there are so many music channels now that just play old school music so you could just find something like this and then you know you go to a mary j blige concert you're not going to find a a more of a loyal fan than any actress any ball player you know that's how i look at it and that's your spirit that's real that's real yeah she's great she's incredible and i think that just speaks with music overall just in terms of the impact I want to go back to something you said. You mentioned that you're training your daughter to take over as CEO. I'll be honest. You don't seem like someone that's going to step aside and stop working. I feel like you're going to continue working and you just love this. I I don't know. I can't see you retiring. I do love it, but you know, I'm going to be 60 and it's like my daughter's in school. I mean, I offered her a million dollars to go to law school and she said no. Oh, wow. You know, she she said no. So like, she goes, I want to be CEO. I'm like, right, then you can be CEO of this company. Like she doesn't play. It's like, I'm not scared of much. Maybe her and God and my mom, but otherwise like she doesn't play. So I'm going to let her have the reins. Nice. But you know, we're developing a relationship now where she's coming to me and asking me a lot of questions and just like, you know, and then, you know, my two boys really run their creative and then she runs the business aspect and she's really creative herself, but she doesn't play. So this is like a low-key version of succession in real life, right? I mean, you're the one handed down the business to the ones of the family of the daughter. That's the one that's gearing up. And, you know, I just watched succession. <laughs> so I guess you're right. <laughs> I will say you I do not. You know, we, we don't have the 20 planes and the 10 helicopters, but, um, you know, we do. Okay. <laughs> you do not strike me as a Logan yeah. Roy type. 
No, I will say that. You don't strike me as a Logan Roy type. <laughs> Something else. Well, that's exciting, though. That's awesome. And I'm sure that, you know, she must be really excited for that with everything that you're doing. Another thing that I thought was really cool that you had done, this was right before the pandemic. You were able to celebrate and have that 25th anniversary celebration for Loud. You're able to have it right in the city. And this was one of the last for like big events in New York right before things had shut down. So not only was it awesome, I feel like the timing was great too. I think it was the last, to be honest with you. I think it was the last. Yeah, that really was a dream come true. You know, I could have done Madison Square Garden and I could have done every arena in New York, but there was always something about Radio City Music Hall that I, you know, just, I lived, one of my apartments when I was starting that it was right down the block from Radio City. So I would see that sign every single day and then just walking on 6th Avenue and seeing the Lad Experience Presents, you know, 25 year anniversary. And then just, see, you know, just being on age where you had the MTV Awards and just, you know, whatever it was, and selling out where people were hanging from the rafters, it was mind-boggling. You know, somebody said to me this past weekend, what are you going to do for your sixth year? And I said, I, you know, I haven't even really thought about it. They said, why don't you do another show? But instead of the loud experience, just go, you know, like a 60th birthday party with all your acts. That would be fun. That would be real fun. So... But you know, that would be loud and SRC together. So that show would be ridiculous. I just got to figure out where, when, and how. Mm. And one of the cool things, too, that I thought was nice about that show, especially given recent events that have happened, is the fact that you're able to have DMX. In. Were you at the show? I wasn't there. No. I wish I was there. It was special. Yeah, it looked great. You'll have to hit me up if the 60th uh, celebration one comes through. Yeah. Definitely. Love to hit me up there. 100%. One of the things that I thought was cool about the show, and especially good just given events that have happened in recent months, is that DMX was able to be involved with it. And I know he's someone that you were able to build a relationship with in recent years, especially leading up to the time that he passed. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship and what it was like to be as close to him as you were? Yeah, I mean, it, it happened authentically. Do you remember like when Kanye was doing the Sunday services? Yeah. So... I went to a Sunday service and I would always be the first one that was, that would be my time. I would always get there early so I could have five or 10 minutes with Kanye alone. And then he said, um, do you see DMX? I'm like, no, he goes, he's, he's over there. He goes, I got to perform today at the church. I didn't know X. And I went, I introduced myself. And um, that night I had a dream that I was going to be involved with the making of his next record. And, um, I spoke to a called the guy by the name of Pat Gallo. He and Pat spoke, and I said, I'll meet you in New York. And Pat brought me in immediately to run the business side of X. And we just got to know each other, coming out and just talking. And, you know, and just, like, the pain and the struggle that he was in was, you know, it touched me to no end where all I really wanted to do was help, you know. And then, because, you know, me and the Rough Riders knew each other. But, you know, we never really did business together. You know, and that's one day Swiss called. And I said, Swiss, this is all on you now. You know, it's like, you know, X was still alive. I said, you're the general here. Like, you're going to make the most incredible album. And you just tell what, just tell me what you need from me. And I'll do everything in my power, you know, to get that done. 
I'll break the walls at Def Jam, do, you know, whatever needs to get done. But you guys did this together. Like Steve Rifkin can't tell either one of you what to do. And, you know, it's, it's been a great partnership with that. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. And I mean, it was also just, you know, I think refreshing too, just seeing how close the two of you got. And I know that you were right there next to him by his bedside and everything. And you had to come out and give the message to people to be like, hey, no, he's still here with us. And that said, I wasn't at the hospital. I I mean, I just thought it was disgusting where like people were saying he's dead already. And there was leaks coming from the hospital, you know, and it was just like, we knew how severe it was, but it was just, you know, I just wanted everybody to shut up so the family could mourn and whatever decision had to be made. And that's all really that was. But when somebody passes in the hospital, like that really just has to be for family. And just like, when my dad passed, like within a half hour, his brothers came. You know, these, you know, his two best friends, you know, it was just 12 of us until his last breath. So it was just like, I'm here and whatever you guys need, I'll quarterback everything here. But you guys got to say you goodbye to him. That's special. And I think that's the way it should be. And I wish that it was more like that. And that's one of the things that's really disappointing about deaths in celebrity culture, especially the way that they are now. Social media just runs with these rumors and it can be so annoying. And this is why I have so much credit for how things were handled with, let's say, Chadwick Boseman or even MF Doom. The families were able to have these conversations and moments by themselves, and then they let the public know on their terms. And yeah, it's just unfortunate when that doesn't happen. But I appreciate you for helping to spread the truth in that moment because people desperately needed it. Man, but you gotta, we got to give a special shout out to Swiss, the Rough Riders, because what Swiss is doing, like, Nobody else would do that. I mean, leaving his family for weeks at a time to really just to help ex's kids and family. You know, I don't know if it was Mother's Day or Father's Day, but he posted a picture with him, his wife, and ex's fiance at a dinner. So it's it's like, I mean, they were truly family. They might not have been blood, but you couldn't get any closer than that. Swiss definitely seems like he's good people with all this stuff, even how he handled thriller and versus and that wholesale making sure that all of the participants including x at the time were able to get on that cap tape were able to get a piece of that equity thought that was really important and it also highlighted a lot of the same character that you're talking about 100 definitely no he's a special special individual in a good way yeah for sure for sure Well, Steve, we're getting to the tail end here, and this has been a great conversation. We covered a lot, but before we let you go, I know you mentioned some of the artists you have on Spring Sound, but is there anything else you want to plug or let the Trapple audience know? What's coming up soon? It's just all about Spring Sound. The music is going to speak for itself. Again, we get Jarlene, who's from Queens, New York. We got Little Kari from Pompano, Florida. We have Riff, who's living in Florida now because he's going to school there, but from L.A., we got EJ Take 45 from San Diego, and we got Bird Bennett from Portland, Oregon. And musically, we'll go to toe to toe with anybody. That's amazing. Good stuff. That's it. Steve, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. All right, man. This, this was great. No, this was great. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend 
post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapolo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating, and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.